The European Union has not treated us well. Stupid European elites jumping off the cliffs once again. Yes, you are the guilty people and you refuse to accept it. This is EU Scream, the progressive politics podcast from Brussels, in association with EU Observer. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now. In this episode, how to campaign in the age of bigots and bullies. We start the show with two prominent activists in Europe. Kajala Dedra is the UK director of Change.org, a global petition service that allows members of the public to mobilize support for issues they care about. She's the author of the 2019 book, Do Something, Activism for Everyone. We also welcome Andrew Strohlein back to EU Scream. He is the European media director for Human Rights Watch, an international non-governmental organization that investigates and reports on abuses worldwide. We begin with a couple of practical examples including how to respond when people champion men's rights in order to attack equality for women. Casual, as a feminist and a woman of color, how do you handle it? How should somebody respond when someone asks, what about men's rights too? Yeah, I think this is a good question because whether or not you're involved in activism, sometimes it's not easy to know how much you should engage in the conversation. I would actually advise somebody to make a, a an, an educated assessment of whether or not this person is coming at it with good intentions. If they genuinely don't know and they don't understand why we're not talking about men's rights as well as women's rights, then I'd just say, discuss, you know, talking to them about the power dynamics in society, it is just true that society is fairer for men than it is for women. And then, you know, talking about examples, so the fact that, you know, women are 80% more likely to become displaced um, because of climate change than men. Talking about some of the facts about the workplace, about the gender pay gap. If I feel like this is a troll, then I just don't engage because, you know, you need to look after yourself. Kind of an intentionality test. Yeah. 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 Sort like, of reading the mood. Sometimes people are actually coming at this from a really genuine place and they just want to know. And other times they're trying to troll you. Andrew... How would you handle it? How might you respond? Someone says, well, our town has the democratic right to go LGBT free, just like 80 municipalities have in Poland. There, they're kind of using democratic arguments against democracy. Yeah, I mean, what we've seen in Poland, I think it it speaks to a wider uh, fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of democracy and what democracy is all about. And I find myself often referring to a kind of thought experiment when when these sorts of arguments come up. So imagine you are in a room with nine other people and you're sitting around a table and six of them vote to throw you out the window. Now, you're pretty instantly aware of the problem. But even if it was somebody else, not you, to be thrown out the window, you would still be aware of the problem. Now, why? What is... What's the problem? I mean, it's a, it's a democratic vote. We've mm. had six people. That's a majority. Mm. So why shouldn't you be chucked out the window? Democracy is more than voting. Democracy depends on a fundamental respect for our basic human rights. And 
you know, we've seen this in Poland and we've seen this with other governments who come to power in various parts of Europe where they say, well, we won the election, so we have the mandate to do whatever we want. Well, no, actually you don't. You know, a vote, a public mandate does not give you the right to plow over individual rights across the board. And, you know, this is something we've been trying to explain again and again to people. You don't, you don't just become an instant dictator because you have a, a majority. It's amazing that the representative element of democracy has to be brought back home to people through the potential for murder. You know, when I saw your faces, again, this is great for for an audio format, but (laughs) when I saw your faces, as soon as I said, you know, they vote to throw you out the window, you're like, yes, okay, well, now, now. And I actually use this this thought experiment a lot in public gatherings and on Twitter when, when people bring up arguments like these. And people get it pretty quick. It's like, oh, right, because... I don't want to be thrown out the window because I might be the next one. Mm-hmm. Especially when you, I think in the age of referendums, people do feel that they had their voice heard and something happened. I see on the platform on change.org, more and more people now wanting referendums on XYZ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, there's a, there's a danger to that. It's, it's very simplistic. It seems like a way to cut through all the complications of society, but you know, society is complicated. Yeah, right. It's got a lot of people, a lot of interests, a lot of wishes. We can't be making very quick decisions, even with the public majority behind yeah, us. Yeah, right? yeah, I agree. You're both from huge global campaign groups. I mean, two of the biggest. Tell me about a recent campaign and was a filter bubble, if you like, crossed Or did you think, well, you know what, we're just going to have to exclude that group? So when I first started working at Change.org, we were working on the No More Page 3 campaign. And so that's the campaign to get the sun to stop putting bare boobs on page three. The sun being the The British tabloid owned by Uh, News Corporation and Murdoch. Yeah. So this petition was started by Lucianne Holmes. Her argument was... I don't have any problem with pornography, but I have a problem with it being on page three of a family newspaper. And one of the tactics of that campaign was to get men to support the campaign and particularly, you know, the kind of men who would read The Sun because she knew that it was easy for people to write her off as a raving feminist if she didn't have allies who crossed all the kind of like the borders. So the framing there was let's use the family. Exactly. Which yeah. right might yeah. appeal to a more conservative male yeah. to kind of come in and support it. And I think family yeah. values is often a really strong right. way of getting right. people to support your campaign from either right. side. Right. Andrew, what about you at Human Rights Watch? Most of the campaigns that an advocacy targets that we're trying to reach are efforts across a lot of groups, a lot of individuals, activists who are, some activists who are in country, some activists who are outside international groups, national groups. And we're almost always, on everything significant, we're working in coalitions to, to, to make these things happen. Most recently, we could look at the success of procedures brought in by the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, the highest UN court, basically, right against Myanmar to stop its acts of genocide and acts sort of related to genocide against the Rohingya community. A Muslim community inside Myanmar, Gambia, country you know, halfway around the world, came up with uh, this idea to 
make the government of Myanmar act and to stop these actions. Now, the court case itself is going to go on for a long time, but there are these kind of interim measures that are really important. The evidence presented by Gambia has been damning. 17 judges spoke unanimously, ruling Myanmar, formerly Burma, must cease any activities which threaten the persecuted Rohingya Muslim minority. Genocide cannot be tolerated by anyone in the world. And that the Rohingya... Let's take that campaign, mm -hmm. where there are some groups that you kind of thought, well, we're never going to convince these countries, we're never going to convince these governments. What was the tactic? If you, again, map out who's like potentially on sides and who's not on sides, well, you know, we thought that since the vast majority of the victims here are Muslims, that some of the you know, Muslim world should be interested. Interestingly, a lot of the Muslim world hasn't been interested, mm. but eventually, slowly, we and others got them interested and there were other countries that we looked at and said, there's just no way that we're going to get their support for this. It's not like we sort of sat down and said, okay, how are we going to, you know, we're going to have a brainstorming session on how to convince China to take our side. And like, no, we're not going to waste our time on that. It's just, that's, that's kind of a pointless thing to do. Let's go a little bit deeper into how do you work out who you are going oh, to yeah. target. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so we do a lot of power mapping. I think sometimes power mapping can just happen as second nature for uh, seasoned campaigners who just kind of... I don't even know this term. Oh, this yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Um, you, you, but you, even if you don't know the term... I mean, to me, it sounds like something that... It's like a GPS in my car. You know? <laughs> it's a no, little it's, like that, really. It's, it's, yeah, it, well, it's just like it's a little... It's a, it's a, it's a smart tool you have in your belt. What, what I um, would do in that situation is draw a grid, so um, a vertical line, and then going halfway across it, um, a horizontal line. This is so hard to explain. This is quadrants, Yeah, right, yeah. right quadrants. We do it, most of it will be supportive left to right. And then and top to bottom is engagement. So yes. highly interested and engaged versus like totally upset. Most likely to. Yeah. So that's what we do. And then you just start um, mapping out everybody from the politicians who have engaged in your campaign, the organizations who might be um, interested or who would be useful in getting on board. So, for example, on a sex education campaign, we knew that we wanted to get the teachers unions on board and particularly there was one specific teachers union that we knew that the education secretary really listened to at the time. And so they become far more influential in your campaign. They get like a, a fluorescent pen around them? So they just go a little bit higher. Maybe you'll circle it okay. and you'll be like, OK, we, that's one of the ones we want to target. And what you want to go for is the most influential and almost like the middling most likely to engage because you don't really want to waste your time on the people who are never going to engage, even if they're super influential, like in knowing who to strategically spend your time on. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're like a grassroots organiser, you don't have all the time in the world. So you need to be really efficient with your time and just being really smart about who you're targeting. We do basically the same thing. And as you say, I think if you've done this a lot, sometimes you kind of do it more in your head than yeah. actually draw it on a board, but we'll draw it on a board or, or put it on a piece of paper and share it around uh, in our meetings. And then we look for allies. And who is going to make the argument, I can make certain arguments in my position and maybe reach a possible audience. I cannot make other arguments, you know, because we need somebody else to make those arguments, either for you know demographic reasons or whatever. But also when we're working with other groups, you know, like 
uh, take, say, the death penalty in the United States, right? Now, there are, are a whole number of arguments we can make about the death penalty and, and, and human rights. And you know, we can reach certain audiences, I think, fairly easily, you know, rallying the base, which is useful and can be helpful. But if we want to reach out into other communities, we may not have the kind of authority or the, the credibility to do that. And so we'll work with maybe religious groups in the, in the United mm -hmm. States, right? And we may disagree on other issues, but we agree on this, and they are going to take that forward. And we work together to try to, you know, help them to come up with the right arguments and, and look at some of the right cases to make sure, like, we have the most credible voice, the most powerful voice to make the, the right arguments. I'm glad you brought that point up because framing is so important. I don't think everyone always understands that you can't just present an argument everybody. Mm -hmm. You actually need to frame it differently to different groups. Absolutely. And initially building up your core base is actually really essential to echo the campaign asks that you're shouting out about. But when you've got that core, core supporter base, that's when it's so important to then start spending your time being strategic about who else you're going to bring on in the journey. Just being really smart about how you're telling your story to different groups. Mm -hmm. I could bring another example into that. So when we look at an issue like torture, you know, we look at a, a number of arguments that might convince people. So on torture, Torture is illegal in international law, so that's easy. And if you're an international lawyer and you love international law, then boom, you know, we've got that group of people there. They're all they're all on board, no problem. It's it's illegal in a lot of national law, so again, you've got you know lawyers and people who respect the law more or less on board. That's a pretty small group, right? So you need to kind of expand that group a little bit further. You can bring in a second argument on the morality of it. Whether you're coming from an ethical standpoint or a religious standpoint, you can bring in kind of moral arguments where some groups may not feel comfortable making that. It's like the law should just be enough, but you know, we're going to bring in the morality argument. Then you have a third argument about the actual usefulness. And you know, time and again, mm. research shows that torture does not work. People will say anything to stop the torture. And this actually brings in a totally separate group. And again, it may make some traditional you know, human rights lawyers feel uncomfortable because we're like, whether it works or not, we don't do it. Yeah. But because it doesn't work, that brings in a whole nother group of people who prioritize national security issues and sort of, you know, if it whatever works, do it. And like, well, it doesn't work. Okay, well, then don't do it. You have a fourth argument of like, it's counterproductive because what you do when you torture your enemy is actually create a recruiting poster for your enemy, right? So that brings in people who are even sort of a little bit further away from us. And so with each argument, we bring in a new audience. And we may make some of the, you know, not all the audiences will be comfortable or associating normally with the other mm. audiences, but they all have an argument that torture is wrong and mm. should yeah. not happen. Both of you have made the case that the process of the power mapping in and of itself, if you follow the process, you are going to start reaching across yeah. to communities that you might not have yeah. are, you know, initially associated with yeah. that campaign. Yeah, we all have different values and you have to speak to people according to the different values. So Jonathan Haidt has an incredible book called The Righteous Mind that I recommend people read about everything that we're talking about right now. And what he says is that we've been making a real mistake for decades with the uh, left trying to talk to the right in left values. And actually what you need to do is understand that the values that you hold of, say, for example, equality, 
you can't use that language because you're speaking to somebody in another language. Mm-hmm. They just can't hear you. Mm-hmm. And so actually just speaking to them in their language. And that's a really helpful yeah. way of just going, okay, what's important to this person? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to speak to them in, on their terms. Yeah. And those values-based arguments are so critical. That that yeah. and, and, and moral foundations theory, which is if you're out there in front of a computer just or your phone, just Google moral foundations theory. Absolutely fantastic yeah. kind of ways to develop arguments based on what you say, what people actually believe in and how they think rather than trying to come up at them with you know, a list of facts or data or yeah. the way you think and the yeah. way you interpret things. Yeah, because it's kind of self-righteous to do that. Well, it's, it comes across as self-righteous, yeah. absolutely. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Just going back to values again, the campaign to make abortion legal in Ireland. And that's a really tough campaign because you're basically thinking, who is of voting age and how can I persuade everybody? That's tough. And one of the ways that they did that, the way that they kind of approached this, was they knew that people were triggered by the word abortion. They were triggered by the word choice. So if you said, you know, I'm pro-choice, they kind of felt, you know, they, they were just not going to listen to you. But what they did know was that people were really persuaded when you talked about what happened to the women and girls when they were making the journey all the way to England to have their abortions and the health risks. And so they made it from a moral argument to a health argument. And then so then that kind of chimes into trying to place the person in that argument and go, the women and girls that in your life are going through this and these are the health risks that they're going through. Right, right. Yeah, it was a brilliant campaign. They got yeah. so many individual stories out like that. They basically had a story lab. Whenever they did come across a woman who was willing to tell her story, because it was hard to tell your story about things like this. And so they just became really efficient and just pulled all the stories together so that then if an, a media organisation had called up, called you up saying, do you have anybody that could speak on this? You could turn to this lab and go, do we have anybody? I want to ask about a recent campaign by a departed member of the European Parliament. Departed because he committed the sin of being English and so had to pack his bags, right? Because of Brexit. I recorded a hello from him. Oh. Yeah. The person who's going to be on my show this week, one of the main people, is a fan of yours, Kajal Odedra. I fucking love Kajal. Oh. She's there great. You go. There you go. And so, Send her my warmest, loveliest regards. I will. I will. And the thing that... Oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> All right. I love Majid. <laughs> we'll hear more from Majid Majid, the former Lord Mayor of Sheffield and now sadly missed MEP. Mm. Anyway, Kajal, you write in your 2019 book, Do Something, Activism for Everyone... Yes, it might be fun to dehumanize people for abusing power for their own benefit, but you also write in that book that this doesn't really help win campaigns. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get your view on Majid's Biggest Bigot Awards. Yeah, Yeah, EBB, standing for Europe's Biggest Bigot. Majid asked people to write in to nominate an elected politician who spreads hate that would make Grandpa Trump proud. <laughs> Is that at odds with with your recommendations? You know, I see a common mistake in campaigning. When people are campaigning to try and persuade a decision maker or something, they often dehumanize them, think of them as the enemy. That already is just going to, your campaigns failed because you will never persuade somebody by othering them. You persuade them by taking them to, we call it the golden path of retreat. 
you know, coaxing them all the way back. What I think is different about this example is that Majid isn't trying to persuade those far-right activists of anything. What he's actually doing is engaging the public on an issue that can be really, really heavy for some people. He actually brings humour and lightness to something that's really, really difficult, especially if you are from a marginal group. It can be really difficult to talk about that stuff. And his rules are just taking risks, being blunt and being himself. Yeah, and to be to be fair to Majid, he also counterbalances this right. critical tone with the Fearless NGO Award. Yeah and the Bigot Buster Award. Andrew, what about you? I mean, what's your view of Maji's approach? Because on social media, when he put this out there, mm. of course, a lot of people said, you know, you're just alienating people. Maybe he's alienating the middle more by doing things like this. Yeah, well, I think when it comes to social media, you often have to use some language that's going to get a little bit more attention and to, and to sort of you know, put yourself out there a little bit more aggressively, and, and in that sense, you know, if, if that's what he's doing with this, I don't see a problem. As for this kind of like polarization issue, uh, you know, there are some people who just fall into categories that you know, look. There's 24 hours in the day. We like to sleep a couple of them, uh, and we're just not going to spend time trying to convince people who are not going to be convinced. You know, it's like we're not. We don't have like a neo-Nazi outreach program to try to convince them onto our side. So, you know, and some people do. I mean, there are neo-Nazis who have been, you know, de extremicized or whatever mm -hmm. and that's just not what we do we, we're trying to, to work on on another side of things up next majid majid himself he's among the more than 70 members of the european parliament who had to pack their bags because of brexit majid was a child refugee from somalia who went on to become lord mayor of sheffield as lord mayor he pledged to ban donald trump from the city Politically, he's a green who once ran a half marathon, dressed as a tree. One of his last initiatives as an MEP was to gather nominations for Europe's biggest bigots and for Europe's top bigot busters. When I knocked at his office door, he was preparing to attend his last plenary meeting at the European Parliament, just eight months after taking office. So what are you going to do next, Majid? Ah, what am I going to do next? So, um, just before I became an MEP, I got a book deal, which I've basically also tried to be working on while I've been an MEP. And uh, so I'll just be doing a lot of like book talks, all sorts of, but in terms of what I'll be doing, I've got What's like, the book going to be called? The book is called The Art of Disruption. It's like a manifesto of our book of politics, activism, a bit of memoir weaved through it. I've got a couple of trips in touch with it's been like, I'm speaking at Harvard. But I'll be an activist first and foremost, and I'll try to take a bit of a break. Let's take the Bigot Awards. Do you have any shortlist in your mind yet? We have got the shortlist. You do? Do you know what? We had over a thousand nominations. Of course, a lot of them were for me as well. A lot of far-right groups were sharing it and saying, nominate, imagine. In Europe's Biggest Bigot 2020, we've got Viktor Orban, LGBT Free Zones in Poland, and Bjorn Hock. Bjorn Hock is the head of the far-right Alternative for Germany party in the state of Thuringia. He has derided Berlin's memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe 
And more recently, he's been in the news for allying with members of Chancellor Merkel's conservative party. That prompted comparisons with the playbook the Nazis used to gain power. And lifetime disgrace when you got Marine Le Pen, Gert Wilders, and Salvini. Rising fascist award, you got Peter Cofford, who's been described as the Draco Malfoy of the parliaments. He's probably got bleach white hair, he kind of looks a bit like Malfoy. Cofford is a young Dane who gained a public profile with a website stigmatizing Eastern Europeans. He was elected to the European Parliament last year for the nativist Danish People's Party. And let call Georgia Maloney. Maloney is the anti-LGBT leader of the Brothers of Italy, a political party that's been described as post-fascist. Maloney's ostentatious Christianity was turned into a satirical music video that went viral last year. Georgia! And Jordan Bardella. Bardella is a young French far-right activist seen as pushing the conspiracy theory that white Europeans are being replaced by non-whites. He was elected to the European Parliament last year, representing Marine Le Pen's party. And we're supporting actors Facebook, Leave EU and Luca Morisi. Luca Morisi ingratiatingly calls far-right Italian leader Matteo Salvini his captain. In fact, Morisi is Salvini's social media manager, credited with honing Salvini's macho image and with making Salvini big on Facebook. And Europe's biggest and bigot buster was the school strikers, Corolla Ricchetta, or 6,000 sardines. Have you come across the sardines? Yes. Yeah, like I was in Italy to help out in the elections. Do you think the sardine model is promising? It's an alternative. I don't know if you can copy and paste it anywhere else, even just the way they came about by basically just trying to outnumber and outdo Salvini by getting people together. As a result, it's really kind of, I think it's done a really good job in terms of marketing and basically branding a movement. Like it's just the sardines. And I, literally when I was there at the big, then when they apparently had like 40,000 people there, you had people like just bringing their own homemade fishes and really people just doing all sorts of DIYs and felt like because it was non-political as well, it was just a campaign against hate speech, a campaign against somebody. And it was just really quite inspiring to see how they were able to engage if you use the word bigot, aren't you somehow excluding conversation with a certain group? Not really. Like, for example, if someone's a bigot, someone's a bigot. Like, if someone's a racist, they're a racist. There comes a point, there comes a limit, in all honesty. But I still think that room for conversation is still there. But say, for example, if someone's a com being a complete racist and they're actually working towards not just hate speech, which can actually turn into action, but also basically just working on policies that are going to hurt vulnerable people. Like, there comes, to, there comes a point where you need to really kind of call them out and really kind of challenge them in every way that you can and not basically say, hey, let's have a dialogue about it. Of course, there's, there's room for having dialogue, but there's also room for calling people out bigger or whatever. And I think they're not mutually exclusive. What about if people in the center, the moderates, who could swing far right, you know, the people who might be tempted by the far-right parties, if they see progressives calling 
people that they kind of have some sympathy for, bigots. Do we lose the middle? Honestly, I don't think bigots that's much, like, that much of a stronger word. To me, there's so many other stronger words we could have. I could have chosen the reason why I specifically chose bigot because I thought, oh, it's, it's, it's kind of like, oh, someone's, like that person being a bigot rather than basically this person's being a fascist or this person's being a racist. So I just kind of thought, listen, a bigot is something that is tolerable to people to centre ground, I'd say. I guess it's a bit of satire as well, just to basically just try to pop fun of the situation, but just to kind of engage people, to kind of highlight what's also happening in European Parliament and European and politics. Because I guess a lot of people who, I guess, follow me on social media, my phone, aren't necessarily come from real politics backgrounds. And I guess I feel like I've got responsibility to kind of just try and inform them as much as possible in different creative ways. And it's also thing that it's like all across Europe, language is interpreted in different ways. Like some people, some member states are happy using the word fascist, and some people are like, well, no, that's a bit too strong. Like you wouldn't. So it's basically it was trying to find one that was um, EU friendly. Is Farage a fascist? A bigot? What is he? People say is Boris Johnson a racist? In my opinion, if you say racist things, you're a racist, and you're a bigot. And I would put. And Boris in that category, I'd put and Nigel Farage in that category. There's a lot of people I'd put in that category, to be honest. So why did the parliament then, what did they do? They censured you? They scolded you for using... <laughs> you know what? It's so funny. <laughs> Where is it? Let me just try. Oh, you've got the letter? I've got a picture of it on my phone, in fact. So basically, it's... Um, what did Sassoli say? It was like, I was informed... Sassoli, the president. Yeah. I was informed that on the 9th of October 2019, during the debate on the preparation of the European Council meeting of 17th of October, you said, inter alia, that Boris Johnson is a liar, a charlatan, a racist, a national disgrace, an enemy of democracy, a selfish saboteur, a puppet to an unelected bureaucrat, and as the grandma, even in his own constituency, called him a filthy piece of torag. And then he goes, he believes that his statements do not respect the standards of the conduct of members laid. And basically, like, he gave me time to like respond before he kind of decided what my uh, punishment was going to be, which could have been literally like suspension for a minimum like a couple of weeks, like a month to like... But I think then Brexit happened and then it was like, oh, you're leaving anyway. And my whole point was a reply, but I said, listen, I can actually prove to you where, even our Supreme Court found him lying. So I can actually, if you want, I can give you evidence of everything that I've basically to back up and what I'm saying. Apparently somebody got offended. They didn't say who got offended, but apparently somebody got offended by that. We're going to see you back here. I may be back here as an MEP with a grey beard, or maybe if I marry a, a Belgian lady, I don't know. But like, in terms of like being back in Brussels, of course, I've made a lot of great friends, so I'm sure I'll be inevitable I'll come back to visit Brussels but, and at some point. But I don't think I'll be coming back into Parliament. Because for me, that like people say, oh, well, you come back to Parliament and visit us. And I'm like, well, this, it's for me, it's just that that chapter is closed and it's like, right, move on. And I'll still be as supportive as I can. And reality of it is, yes, Brexit is shit. But I guess the fight for a better world, a better, more compassionate Europe, a better... UK does not stop with an election or a stupid referendum and there's so much that needs to be done back in the UK and also so I'll have my hands full. That's EU Scream for this week. 
You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. EU Scream is edited and mixed by me, James Cantor. Tom Brooks and I produce the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>